Chapter Eight of Quichi. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Arlene Stebbins. Quichi by Susan Warner. Chapter Eight. The Fairy Leaves the House. Patience and sorrow strove who should express her goodliest. King Lear. When Mr. Carleton knocked at the front door the next day, about two o'clock, it was opened to him by Cynthy. He asked for his late host. Mr. Ringan is dead. Dead! exclaimed the young man, much shocked. When? How? Won't you come in, sir? said Cynthy. Maybe you'll see Miss Plumfield. No, certainly, replied the visitor. Only tell me about Mr. Ringan. He died last night. What was the matter with him? I don't know, said Cynthia in a business-like tone of voice. I suppose the doctor knows, but he didn't say nothing about it. He died very sudden. Was he alone? No, his sister was with him. He had been complaining all the evening that he didn't feel right. But I didn't think nothing of it, and I didn't know he did. And towards evening he went and laid down, and Flitta was with him a spell, talking to him. And at last he sent her to bed, and called me in, and said he felt mighty strange, and he didn't know what it was going to be, and that he had as leave I should send up and ask Miss Plumfield to come down, and perhaps I might as well send for the doctor, too. And I sent right off, but the doctor wasn't to hum, and didn't get here until long after Miss Plumfield she come. And Mr. Ringan was asleep then, and I didn't know as it was going to be anything more after all than just a turn, such as anybody might take. And Miss Plumfield went in and sought by him, and there wa'n't no one else in the room. And after a while he come to and talked to her, she said, a spell. But he seemed to think it was something more than common ailed him. And all of a sudden he just riz up halfway in bed and then fell back and died, with no more warning than that. And how is the little girl? Why, said Cynthia, looking off at right angles from her visitor, She's middlin' now, I suppose, but she won't be before long, or else she must be harder to make sick than other folks. We can't get her out of the room, she added, bringing her eyes to bear for an instant upon the young gentleman. She stays in there the whole time since mornin'. I've tried, and Miss Plumfield's tried, and everybody has tried, and there can't none of us manage it. She will stay in there, and it's an awful cold room when there ain't no fire. Cynthia and her visitor were both taking the benefit of the chill blast which rushed in at the open door. The room? said Mr. Carleton. The room where the body lies? Yes, it's dreadful chill in there when the stove ain't heated, and she sits there the whole time. And she ha'n't got much to boast of now. She looks as if a feather would blow her away. The door at the further end of the hall opened about two inches, and a voice called out through the crack. Cynthia! "'Miss Plumfield wants to know if that is Mr. Carleton.' "'Yes.' "'Well, she'd like to see him. Ask him to walk into the front room,' she says. Cynthia upon this showed the way, and Mr. Carleton walked into the same room where a few days before he had been so kindly welcomed by his fine old host. Cold indeed it was now, as was the welcome he would have given. There was no fire in the chimney, and even all signs of the fire of the other day had been carefully cleared away. The clean, empty fireplace looked a mournful assurance that its cheerfulness would not soon come back again. It was a raw, disagreeable day, 
the paper window-shades fluttered uncomfortably in the wind which had its way now, and the very chairs and tables seemed as if they had taken leave of life and society forever. Mr. Carleton walked slowly up and down, his thoughts running perhaps somewhat in the train where poor little Fleda's had been so busy last night, and wrapped up in broadcloth as he was to the chin, he shivered when he heard the chill wind moaning round the house, and rustling the paper hangings, and thought of little Fleda's delicate frame, exposed as Cynthia had described it. He made up his mind it must not be. Mrs. Plumfield presently came in, and met him with the calm dignity of that sorrow which needs no parade, and that truth and meekness of character which can make none. Yet there was nothing like stoicism, no affected or proud repression of feeling. Her manner was simply the dictate of good sense borne out by a firm and quiet spirit. Mr. Carleton was struck with it. It was a display of character different from any he had ever before met with. It was something he could not quite understand, for he wanted the key. But all the high respect he had felt for this lady from the first was confirmed and strengthened. After quietly receiving Mr. Carleton's silent grasp of the hand, Aunt Miriam said, "'I troubled you to stop, sir, that I might ask how much longer you expect to stop at Montpool.' "'Not more than two or three days,' he said. "'I understood.' said aunt miriam after a minute's pause that mrs carleton was so kind as to say she would take care of elfleda to france and put her in the hands of her aunt she would have great pleasure in doing it said mr carleton i can promise for your little niece that she shall have a mother's care so long as my mother can render it aunt miriam was silent and he saw her eyes fill you should not have had the pain of seeing me to-day said he gently if I could have known it would give you any. But since I am here, may I ask whether it is your determination that Fleda shall go with us? It was my brother's, said Aunt Miriam, sighing. He told me, last night, that he wished her to go with Mrs. Carleton, if she would still be so good as to take her. I have just heard about her from the housekeeper, said Mr. Carleton, what has disturbed me a good deal. Will you forgive me if I venture to propose that she should come to us at once? Of course we will not leave the place for several days, till you are ready to part with her. Aunt Miriam hesitated, and again the tears flushed to her eyes. I believe it would be best, she said, since it must be. I cannot get the child away from her grandfather. I am afraid I want firmness to do it, and she ought not to be there. She is a tender little creature." For once self-command failed her. She was obliged to cover her face. "'A stranger's hands cannot be more tender of her than ours will be,' said Mr. Carleton, his warm pressure of Aunt Miriam's hand, repeating the promise. "'My mother will bring a carriage for her this afternoon, if you will permit.' "'If you please, sir, since it must be, it does not matter a day sooner or later,' repeated Aunt Miriam. "'If she can be got away, I don't know whether it will be possible.' Mr. Carleton had his own private opinion on that point. He merely promised to be there again in a few hours, and took his leave. He came with his mother about five o'clock in the afternoon. They were shown this time to the kitchen, where they found two or three neighbors and friends with Aunt Miriam and Cynthia. The former received them with the same calm simplicity that Mr. Carleton had admired in the morning, but said she was afraid their coming would be in vain. 
She had talked with Fleda about the proposed plan, and could not get her to listen to it. She doubted whether it would be possible to persuade her, and yet— Aunt Miriam's self-possession seemed to be shaken when she thought of Fleda. She could not speak of her without watering eyes. "'She's fixin' to be as sick as ever she can,' remarked Cynthia dryly, in a kind of aside meant for the audience. "'There wa'n't a grain of colour in her face when I went in to try to get her out a little while ago, and Miss Plumfield hadn't the heart to do anything with her, nor nobody else.' "'Mother, will you see what you can do?' said Mr. Carleton. Mrs. Carleton went, with an expression of face that her son, nobody else, knew meant that she thought it a particularly disagreeable piece of business. She came back after the lapse of a few minutes, in tears. "'I can do nothing with her,' she said hurriedly. "'I don't know what to say to her, and she looks like death. Go yourself, Guy. You can manage her if anyone can.' Mr. Carleton went immediately. The room into which a short passage admitted him was cheerless indeed. On a fair afternoon the sun's rays came in there pleasantly, but this was a true November day, a grey sky and a chill raw wind that found its way in between the loose window-sashes and frames. One corner of the room was sadly tenanted by the bed which held the remains of its late master and owner. At a little table between the windows, with her back turned towards the bed, Fleda was sitting, her face bowed in her hands upon the old quarto Bible that lay there open, a shawl round her shoulders. Mr. Carleton went up to the side of the table and softly spoke her name. Fleda looked up at him for an instant, and then buried her face in her hands on the book as before. That look might have staggered him, but that Mr. Carleton rarely was staggered in any purpose when he had once made up his mind. It did move him, so much that he was obliged to wait a minute or two before he could muster firmness to speak to her again. Such a look, so pitiful in its sorrow, so appealing in its helplessness, so imposing in its purity, he had never seen, and it absolutely awed him. Many a child's face is lovely to look upon for its innocent purity, but more commonly it is not like this. It is the purity of snow, unsullied, but not unsullyable. There is another kind, more ethereal, like that of light, which you feel is from another sphere, and will not know soil. But there were other signs in the face that would have nerved Mr. Carleton's resolution if he had needed it. Twenty-four hours had wrought a sad change. The child looked as if she had been ill for weeks. Her cheeks were colourless. The delicate brow would have seemed pencilled on marble, but for the dark lines which weeping and watching and still more sorrow had drawn underneath and the beautiful moulding of the features showed under the transparent skin like the work of the sculptor. She was not crying then, but the open pages of the great Bible had been wet with very many tears since her head had rested there. Fleda, said Mr. Carleton after a moment, you must come with me. The words were gently and tenderly spoken, yet they had that tone which young and old instinctively know is vain to dispute. Fleda glanced up again, a touching, imploring look that was very difficult to bear, and her, "'Oh, no, I cannot,' went to his heart. It was not resistance, but entreaty, and all the arguments she would have urged seemed to lie in the mere tone of her voice. She had no power of urging them in any other way, for even as she spoke her head went down again on the Bible with a burst of sorrow. 
Mr. Carleton was moved, but not shaken in his purpose. He was silent a moment, drawing back the hair that fell over Fleta's forehead with a gentle caressing touch, and then he said, still lower and more tenderly than before, but without flinching, "'You must come with me, Fleta.' "'Mayn't I stay?' said Fleta, sobbing, while he could see in the tension of the muscles a violent effort at self-control which he did not like to see. "'Mayn't I stay till—till the day after to-morrow?' "'No, dear Fleta,' said he, stroking her head kindly. "'I will bring you back, but you must go with me now. Your aunt wishes it, and we all think it is best. I will bring you back.' She sobbed bitterly for a few minutes. Then she begged in smothered words that he would leave her alone a little while. He went immediately. She checked her sobs when she heard the door close upon him, or as soon as she could, and rising went and knelt down by the side of the bed. It was not to cry, though what she did could not be done without many tears. It was to repeat with equal earnestness and solemnity her mother's prayer, that she might be kept pure from the world's contact. There, beside the remains of her last dear earthly friend, as it were before going out of his sight for ever, little Fleda knelt down to set the seal of faith and hope to his wishes, and to lay the constraining hand of memory upon her conscience. It was soon done, and then there was but one thing more to do. But, oh, the tears that fell as she stood there before she could go on! How the little hands were pressed to the bowed face, as if they would have borne up the load they could not reach, the convulsive struggle before the last look could be taken, the last good-bye said. But the sobs were forced back, the hands wiped off the tears, the quivering features were bidden into some degree of calmness, and she leaned forward over the loved face that in death had kept all its wonted look of mildness and placid dignity. It was in vain to look through Fleda's blinded eyes. The hot tears dropped fast while her trembling lips kissed, and kissed, those cold and silent that could make no return. And then feeling that it was the last, that the parting was over, she stood again by the side of the bed as she had done a few minutes before, in a convulsion of grief, her face bowed down, and her little frame racked with feeling too strong for it shaken visibly as if too frail to bear the trial to which it was put. Mr. Carleton had waited and waited, as he thought long enough, and now at last came in again, guessing how it was with her. He put his arm round the child and gently drew her away, and sitting down took her on his knee, and endeavoured rather with actions than with words to soothe and comfort her, for he did not know what to say. But his gentle, delicate way, the soft touch with which he again stroked back her hair or took her hand, speaking kindness and sympathy, the loving pressure of his lips once or twice to her brow, the low tones in which he told her that she was making herself sick, that she must not do so, that she must let him take care of her, were powerful to soothe or quiet a sensitive mind, and Fleda felt them. It was a very difficult task, and if undertaken by any one else— would have been more likely to disgust and distress her. But his spirit had taken the measure of hers, and he knew precisely how to temper every word and tone so as just to meet the nice sensibilities of her nature. He had hardly said anything, but she had understood all he meant to say, and when he told her at last, softly, that it was getting late and she must let him take her away, she made no more difficulty, 
rose up and let him lead her out of the room without once turning her head to look back. Mrs. Carleton looked relieved that there was a prospect of getting away, and rose up with a happy adjusting of her shawl round her shoulders. Aunt Miriam came forward to say good-bye, but it was very quietly said. Fleda clasped her round the neck convulsively for an instant, kissed her as if a kiss could speak a whole heartful, and then turned submissively to Mr. Carleton and let him lead her to the carriage. There was no fault to be found with Mrs. Carleton's kindness when they were on the way. She held the forlorn little child tenderly in her arm, and told her how glad she was to have her with them, how glad she should be if she were going to keep her always. But her saying so only made Fleda cry, and she soon thought it best to say nothing. All the rest of the way Fleda was a picture of resignation, transparently pale, meek, and pure and fragile seemingly as the delicatest wood-flower that grows. Mr. Carleton looked grieved, and leaning forward he took one of her hands, in his own, and held it affectionately until they got to the end of their journey. It marked Fleda's feeling towards him that she let it lie there without making a motion to draw it away. She was so still for the last few miles that her friends thought she had fallen asleep but when the carriage stopped and the light of the lantern was flung inside they saw the grave hazel eyes broad open and gazing intently out of the window. "'You will order tea for us in your dressing-room, mother,' said Mr. Carleton. "'Us? Who is us? Fleda and me, unless you will please to make one of the party.' "'Certainly I will, but perhaps Fleda might like it better downstairs, wouldn't you, dear?' "'If you please, ma'am.' said Fleda, wherever you please. But which would you rather, Fleda? said Mr. Carleton. I would rather have it upstairs, said Fleda gently, but it's no matter. We will have it upstairs, said Mrs. Carleton. We will be a nice little party up there by ourselves. You shall not come down till you like. You are hardly able to walk up, said Mr. Carleton tenderly. Shall I carry you? The tears rushed into Fleda's eyes, but she said no, and managed to mount the stairs, though it was evidently an exertion. Mrs. Carleton's dressing-room, as her son had called it, looked very pleasant when they got there. It was well lighted and warmed, and something answering to curtains had been summoned from its obscurity in store-room or garret, and hung up at the windows. "'Them air fussy English folks had made such a pint of it,' the landlord said. Truth was that Mr. Carleton, as well as his mother, wanted this room as a retreat for the quiet and privacy which travelling in company as they did, they could hardly have nowhere else. Everything the hotel could furnish in the shape of comfort had been drawn together to give this room as little the look of a public-house as possible. Easy-chairs, as Mrs. Carleton remarked with a disgusted face, one could not expect to find in a country inn. Instead, there were as many as half a dozen of those miserable substitutes, as she called rocking-chairs, and sundry fashions of couches and sofas, in various degrees of elegance and convenience. The best of these, a great chintz-covered thing, full of pillows, stood invitingly near the bright fire. There Mr. Carleton placed little Fleda, and took off her bonnet and things, and piled the cushions about her just in the way that would make her most easy and comfortable. He said little, and she nothing but her eyes watered again at the kind tenderness of his manner, and then he left her in peace till the tea came. The tea was made in that room for those three alone. 
Fleda knew that Mr. and Mrs. Carleton stayed up there only for her sake, and it troubled her, but she could not help it. Neither could she be very sorry so far as one of them was concerned. Mr. Carleton was too good to be wished away. All that evening his care of her never ceased. At tea, which the poor child would hardly have shared but for him, and after tea, when, in the absence of bustle, she had leisure to feel more fully her strange circumstances and position, he hardly permitted her to feel either, doing everything for her ease and pleasure, and quietly managing at the same time to keep back his mother's more forward and less happily adapted tokens of kind feeling. Though she knew he was constantly occupied with her, Fleda could not feel oppressed. His kindness was as pervading and as unobtrusive as the summer air itself. She felt as if she was in somebody's hands that knew her wants before she did, and quietly supplied or prevented them, in a way she could not tell how. It was very rarely that she even got a chance to utter the quiet and touching, Thank you, which invariably answered every token of kindness or thoughtfulness that permitted an answer. How greatly that harsh and sad day was softened to little Fleda's heart by the good feeling and fine breeding of one person. She thought when she went to bed that night, thought seriously and gratefully that since she must go over the ocean, and take that long journey to her aunt, how glad she was, how thankful she ought to be that she had so very kind and pleasant people to go with. Kind and pleasant she counted them both, but what more she thought of Mr. Carleton it would be hard to say. Her admiration of him was very high, appreciating as she did to the full all that charm of manner which she could neither analyze nor describe. Her last words to him that night, spoken with a most wistful, anxious glance in his face, were, "'You will take me back again, Mr. Carleton.' He knew what she meant. "'Certainly I will. I promised you, Fleda.' "'Whatever Guy promises you may be very sure he will do,' said his mother with a smile. Fleda believed it, but the next morning it was very plain that this promise he would not be called upon to perform. Fleda would not be well enough to go to the funeral. She was able indeed to get up, but she lay all day upon the sofa in the dressing-room. Mr. Carleton had bargained for no company last night. Today female curiosity could stand it no longer, and Mrs. Thorne and Mrs. Evelyn came to look and gossip openly, and to admire and comment privately when they had a chance. Fleda lay perfectly quiet and still, and seeming not much to notice or care for their presence, they thought she was tolerably easy in body and mind, perhaps tired and sleepy, and liked to do well enough after a few days. How little they knew! How little they could imagine of the assembly of thought which was holding in that child's mind! How little they deemed of the deep, sad, serious look into life which that little spirit was taking! how far they were from fancying while they were discussing all manner of trifles before her, sometimes when they thought her sleeping, that in the intervals between sadder and weightier things her nice instincts were taking the gauge of all their characters, unconsciously but surely, how they might have been ashamed if they had known that while they were busy with all the affairs in the universe but those which most nearly concerned them, the little child at their side whom they had almost forgotten, was secretly looking up to her father in heaven, and asking to be kept pure from the world. Not unto the wise and prudent! How strange it may seem in one view of the subject! In another, how natural! How beautiful! How reasonable! 
Fleda did not ask again to be taken to Queechy, but as the afternoon drew on she turned her face away from the company and shielded it from view among the cushions, and lay in that utterly motionless state of body which betrays a concentrated movement of the spirits in some hidden direction. To her companions it betrayed nothing. They only lowered their tones a little lest they should disturb her. It had grown dark, and she was sitting up again, leaning against the pillows and in her usual quietude when Mr. Carleton came in. They had not seen him since before dinner. He came to her side, and, taking her hand, made some gentle inquiry how she was. "'She has had a fine rest,' said Mrs. Evelyn. "'She has been sleeping all the afternoon,' said Mrs. Carleton. "'She lay as quiet as a mouse without stirring. You were sleeping, weren't you, dear?' Fleda's lips hardly formed the word no, and her features were quivering sadly. Mr. Carleton's were impenetrable. "'Dear Fleda,' said he, stooping down and speaking with equal gravity and kindliness of manner, "'you were not able to go.' Fleda's shake of the head gave a meek acquiescence, but her face was covered, and the gay talkers around her were silenced and sobered by the heaving of her little frame with sobs that she could not keep back. Mr. Carleton secured the permanence of their silence for that evening. He dismissed them the room again, and would have nobody there but himself and his mother. Instead of being better the next day, Fleda was not able to get up. She was somewhat feverish and exceedingly weak. She lay like a baby, Mrs. Carleton said, and gave as little trouble as possible. Gentle and patient always, she made no complaint, and even uttered no wish, and whatever they did made no objection. Though many a tear that day and the following paid its faithful tribute to the memory of what she had lost, no one knew it, and she was never seen to weep, and the very grave composure of her face and her passive unconcern as to what was done or doing around her alone gave her friends reason to suspect that the mind was not as quiet as the body. Mr. Carleton was the only one who saw deeper, the only one that guessed why the little hand often covered the eyes so carefully, and read the very, very grave lines of the mouth that it could not hide. As soon as she could bear it, he had her brought out into the dressing-room again and laid her on the sofa, and it was several days before she could be got any further. But there he could be more with her and devote himself more to her pleasure, and it was not long before he had made himself necessary to the poor child's comfort in a way beyond what he was aware of. He was not the only one who showed her kindness. Unwearied care and most affectionate attention were lavished upon her by his mother and both her friends. They all thought they could not do enough to mark their feeling and regard for her. Mrs. Carleton and Mrs. Evelyn nursed her by night and by day. Mrs. Evelyn read to her. Mrs. Thorne would come often to look and smile at her, and say a few words of heartfelt pity and sympathy. Yet Fleda could not feel quite at home with any one of them. They did not see it. Her manner was affectionate and grateful to the utmost of their wish. Her simple, natural politeness, her nice sense of propriety, were at every call. She seemed after a few days to be as cheerful and to enter as much into what was going on about her as they had any reason to suspect she could, and they were satisfied. But while moving thus smoothly among her new companions, in secret her spirit stood aloof. There was not one of them that could touch her, 
that could understand her, that could meet the want of her nature. Mrs. Carleton was incapacitated for it by education, Mrs. Evelyn by character, Mrs. Thorne by natural constitution. Of them all, though by far the least winning and agreeable in personal qualifications, Fleda would soonest have relied on Mrs. Thorne, could soonest have loved her. Her homely sympathy and kindness made their way to the child's heart. Fleda felt them and trusted them, but there were too few points of contact. Fleda thanked her, and did not wish to see her again. With Mrs. Carleton, Fleda had almost nothing at all in common, and that notwithstanding all this lady's politeness, intelligence, cultivation, and real kindness towards herself, Fleda would readily have given her credit for them all. And yet the Nautilus may as soon compare notes with the navigator. The canary might as well study Maelzel's metronome, as a child of nature and a woman of the world comprehend and suit each other. The nature of the one must change, or the two must remain the wide world apart. Fleda felt it. She did not know why. Mrs. Carleton was very kind and perfectly polite, but Fleda had no pleasure in her kindness, no trust in her politeness, or if that be saying too much at least she felt that for some inexplicable reason both were unsatisfactory. Even the tact which each possessed in an exquisite degree was not the same in each. In one it was the self-graduating power of a clever machine, in the other the delicateness of a sensitive plant. Mrs. Carleton herself was not without some sense of this distinction, she confessed secretly, that there was something in Fleda, out of the reach of her discernment, and consequently beyond the walk of her skill, and felt, rather uneasily, that more delicate hands were needed to guide so delicate a nature. Mrs. Evelyn came nearer the point. She was very pleasant, and she knew how to do things in a charming way. And there were times, frequently, when Fleda thought she was everything lovely. But yet now and then a mere word, or look, would contradict this fair promise, a something of hardness which Fleda could not reconcile with the soft gentleness of other times. And on the whole Mrs. Evelyn was unsure ground to her. She could not venture her confidence there. With Mr. Carleton alone Fleda felt at home. He only, she knew, completely understood and appreciated her. Yet she saw also that with others he was not the same as with her. Whether grave or gay, there was about him an air of cool indifference, very often reserved and not seldom haughty. And the eye which could melt and glow when turned upon her was something as bright and cold as a winter sky. Fleda felt sure, however, that she might trust him entirely so far as she herself was concerned. Of the rest she stood in doubt. She was quite right in both cases. Whatever else there might be in that blue eye, there was truth in it when it met hers. She gave that truth her full confidence, and was willing to honour every draft made upon her charity for the other parts of his character. He never seemed to lose sight of her. He was always doing something for which Fleda loved him, but so quietly and happily that she could neither help his taking the trouble nor thank him for it. It might have been a matter of surprise that a gay young man of fashion should concern himself like a brother about the wants of a little child. The young gentlemen downstairs who were not of the society in the dressing-room did make themselves very merry upon the subject, and rallied Mr. Carleton with a common amount of wit and wisdom about his little sweetheart, a raillery which met the most flinty indifference. 
but none of those who saw Fleda ever thought strange of anything that was done for her, and Mrs. Carleton was rejoiced to have her son take up the task she was fain to lay down. So he, really, more than any one else, had the management of her, and Fleda invariably greeted his entrance into the room with a faint smile, which even the ladies who saw agreed was well worth waiting for. End of chapter 8